The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Allion Herbicide from Bayer. Residual control that goes the distance. Cleaner, longer, Allion. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Farmers throughout the state, including those right here in Sacramento County, are facing a growing problem. Where to find the labor to plant and harvest the crops? It may take a combination of solutions to keep the food coming to your table. We have that report. This is the time of year for prune growers in the Sacramento Valley to take action against a major pest that's lurking in the fields, patiently waiting for its 2018 appearance, plum aphids. We talk control strategies with an expert. Barn owls are playing a bigger part in the battle against rodents on the farm. We have a how-to for you if you want to set up your own barn owl hotel. All that, crop reports, and more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Across California, farmers and ranchers face chronic problems in finding and hiring qualified as well as willing people to work in agriculture. That according to a survey conducted by the California Farm Bureau Federation. That member's survey showed that more than half of responding farmers had experienced employee shortages during the past year. The figure was higher among farmers who needed to hire employees on a seasonal basis. 69% of those farmers reported experiencing shortages. Julie Jensen is Sacramento County's Agricultural Commissioner. She told the County Board of Supervisors recently that finding qualified farm workers here is a major issue. Many of the challenges facing agriculture in Sacramento County are the same as those facing growers throughout the state. Immigrant workers, farm workers in California, they're getting older and they're not being replaced. A Pew Research study showed that the net flow across the U.S.-Mexico border reversed in 2005 and that trend accelerated through 2014. And the native-born Americans aren't really interested in this job, even at the wages that have soared to higher than average prices. Agricultural technology is trying to address the, pro the problem with more mechanization of both the growing and the harvesting of crops. Um, but this often requires changes in the patterns of growing and also in the varieties of crops. So it doesn't happen really quickly. When asked what actions they have taken in response to employee shortages, farmers participating in that Farm Bureau survey most frequently cited increasing the wages, more benefits and additional incentives. Farmers also reported they had used, attempted, or investigated the mechanization, as well as reduced cultivation activities such as pruning trees and vines, and either planted fewer acres or even left some crops unharvested. The Farm Bureau and other organizations are continuing to work with Congress in order to create a secure, flexible, market-based agricultural immigration program. Rice growers are one of the very few producers expected to get more for this year's crop than last season. Part of that's what we've seen is a big year-over-year -year decline in U.S. production a big part of that being the reduction in area. USDA Outlook Chairman Seth Meyer says producers harvested 23% fewer acres, producing a 20% smaller crop at 178.4 million hundredweight. On the demand side, compared to expectations a month ago, Meyer's team of analysts projecting exports down 2 million hundredweight, long grain and the medium short both down, and carry out stocks up by a little over two million hundredweight. Again, compared to last month's forecast. Result, USDA chopping 20 cents off of its previous rice price forecast. Still a good year-over-year -year increase in rice prices. 
very good increase, $2.60. Rice growers expected to be getting an average of around $13 a hundredweight. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. It's been an up and down year for some of California's agricultural commodities. Production has been down, but it's been a good year for prices. The latest Pacific Region Crop Production and Price Reports from the USDA, probably the biggest jump in price has been in Valencia oranges from California. Last year, the price per box was $8.61. Today, $22.20. California's apple prices are up as well, $0.45 a pound a year ago. In 2017, $1.04. Also up, milk, $15.94 per hundredweight last year. This year, $16.45. And the price per ton of hay from California has gone up as well, $155 last year to $170 this year. These days, it's easy to travel the world as long as you have a computer. When you zoom in, you can zoom into a country, you can zoom into a county, you can zoom into a village, you can zoom into an individual farm, you know, any farm in the world. That was the U.S. Geological Survey's Prasad Thankabail, who led a project to develop a new digital map of all the croplands around the world. This is the highest resolution that a global crop plants are ever mapped. He says previous maps had lower resolution, which in turn gave less accurate information. What happens in those maps is you will see, you know, a couple of things happen. One is if there are fragmented croplands, you will completely miss it. Or you might have a portion of that pixel out of 100 hectares, certain portion might be cropland, and you might map the entire pixel as cropland. What's the website? Croplands.org. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. A coalition of a dozen national as well as Midwestern agricultural groups sued this past week to try to overturn a California decision that could result in label warnings that the popular weed killer Roundup can cause cancer. The lawsuit was filed in federal court in Sacramento. It's seeking an injunction barring the state from enforcing what the suit described as false and misleading in its warning. It claims California's decision violates constitutional due process as well as free speech rights and should be superseded by federal regulations. The Associated Press reports that Roundup's main ingredient, glyphosate, is not restricted by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and has been widely used since 1974 as a means of killing unwanted weeds while leaving crops and other plants alive. But the International Agency for Research on Cancer, based in Lyon, France, has classified it as a possible human carcinogen, and that led California authorities to add glyphosate to a list of chemicals known to cause cancer. The listing could eventually lead to a requirement for warning labels on the product. The suit also alleges a ripple effect on food production across the country. It says entities that process crops for food products sold in California would have to stop using glyphosate-treated crops, and it would have to add warning labels that could diminish demand for their products or engage in costly tests in order to show that any glyphosate residue is at safe levels. The NAFTA renegotiations provide an opportunity to improve agricultural trade across partner countries. However, recent rhetoric and delays in the renegotiation are giving way to rising concerns over the trade deal's future. Missouri Farm Bureau President Blake Hurst says U.S. agriculture depends on NAFTA. We hope we'll see progress in the NAFTA renegotiations. There's obviously progress that can be made, phytosanitary problems at the border, improvements in our trade and dairy with the Canadians, but 70% 
percent of uh, Missouri farmers' uh, exports go to either Canada or Mexico. We depend on this trade agreement. He says recent rhetoric regarding trade is troubling to farmers, especially after Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue, who understands NAFTA's positive impact on agriculture, has publicly expressed concern about the trade agreement's future. That's something that will keep you up at night. And I know that Secretary Perdue is a very smart and very capable and leader of agriculture, and we're glad to have him where he is. But if he's that concerned, then I'm really concerned. Withdrawal or failure to reach an agreement for NAFTA, Hearst says, would result in an economic disaster for agriculture. Tariffs on our exports to Mexico, for example, are zero. They would go up to an average of 15%. So you see a 15% price increase, and you're going to see a probably less than 15% drop in demand, but maybe not. Maybe it's greater than that. You start talking about a 10 or 15% decline in already unprofitable prices, and you're talking about an economic emergency for agriculture. Michael Clements, Washington. Here's this week's California crop report. Early plantings of small grains had germinated. They're showing good emergence, and growers continue to prep more fields for fall planting of wheat, barley, and oats. Alfalfa for hay production is finishing up with the last cuts of the season as growers windrowed, baled, and stacked the hay. The fields received herbicide treatments. Corn, milo, and sorghum continue to be harvested for green chop. Silage corn grew well, and harvesting is ongoing. Rice harvest is nearing completion. Cotton fields were defoliated. Harvesting was in full swing. Black-eyed beans are being harvested and processed. Most summer crops have been harvested, and fields are being prepared for winter planting. The apple harvest is winding down. Pruning has started in some stone fruit orchards. Some old orchards were being removed and prepared for replanting. Wine grape harvest is almost complete. Thompson seedless grapes are being rolled and picked up for raisins. Table grape harvest is winding down for the season. Quince, pears, pomegranates, kiwifruit, and persimmons were harvested. Olive groves were pruned. Early navel orange harvest is underway. Lemon, grapefruit, and pomelos were being harvested. And the mandarin harvest has begun. Almond harvest is complete. Orchard pruning and planting of new orchards is ongoing. Walnut and pistachio harvest is wrapping up. Harvested nut orchards are being irrigated. Harvest continues for green beans, cucumbers, daikon, eggplant, yellow bell peppers, and tomatoes. Processing tomato harvest is complete, and the harvested fields are being cultivated. Melon harvest is near completion. Garlic harvest was complete. New garlic crops are being planted. New fresh market onions are being treated for worms. The organic cantaloupe harvest has ended. Organic broccoli, celery, and spinach fields are growing nicely. Head, leaf, and romaine lettuce for the fall season are growing nicely, with many fields starting to be harvested. Non-irrigated and foothill rangeland forage is primarily in poor to very poor condition. Supplemental feeding of cattle is ongoing. Cattle were being moved down from higher elevation ranges. Sheep are grazing on harvested alfalfa and grain fields. Some bees were moved to Fresno County to overwinter. Local bees were provided with supplemental feed. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. California leads the nation when it comes to plum and dried plum production. Dried plums, also known as prunes. It's also among California's top 20 agricultural exports to the European Union and Japan. In the Sacramento Valley, the major prune-producing counties include Butte, Sutter, Tehama, Yuba, Glen. And uh, like I say, those are mostly dried plums or prunes. 
Fresh plums come from Fresno County mostly, and those are exported to Canada and China. But a big problem this time of year are prune aphids. And the reason it's a problem this time of year is you got to hunt them down in order to protect your trees for next year. So let's talk prune aphid management with Franz Niederholzer. He's a UC Farm Advisor in Calusa, Sutter, and Yuba Counties. And Franz, what sort of damage are these aphids doing, and, and which varieties of aphids are they? They're the leaf curl plum aphid and the mealy plum aphid. They overwinter in the orchard as eggs, and they hatch right around bloom, and they feed on the new growing shoots, curling the leaves, dropping a lot of honeydew, sapping the tree's vigor. And in, in some cases where they, they've uh, got an extreme uh, infestation, I've seen reduction in bloom the following year, things of that nature. Um, you can get a lot more splitting uh, and cracking on the prunes that are covered with, with honeydew. So they are, they're pretty much the major pest uh, of prune production in California. Do they overwinter in the orchard? Yes. Well, they're not, 20, not uh, 12 months of the year residents in the orchard. In the, in the spring when the shoots, or well, late spring, when the shoots quit growing and harden off, they move out of the orchard um, into neighboring fields some sometimes and um, depending upon the species of aphid they go into bulrushes or adjacent vegetation and then in the fall probably with the change in the day length they know that they find their way back into the orchards and um, they mate and they lay the eggs are laid by the females and uh, they overwinter as eggs in you know in on the spurs in the in the trees so this is the time of the year to go aphid egg hunting then yes and, and talk about a needle in a haystack this is, this is the time to look for them but um they're very, they're they're not hard to, to recognize when you see them. They look like a, in a hand lens, they look like, kind of like a grain of rice uh, stuck on the uh, spurs. But um, aphids have such a rapid population jump. They, there's not that, it doesn't take that many eggs to make a real problem in the spring. But this is the time to, to look for them if you're, um, you know, you're getting ready, you're taking your dormant spur samples and prunes to check on, really on scale and, and the aphid eggs. If you see some mite eggs, that's fine, but... Um, they're usually not a big problem, but aphids for sure and scale, depending upon the, the orchard. How effective is fall spur sampling in this? You know, it's it's really effective for scale, and that's the, the primary reason to do it. The, tr the trouble with the monitoring results for aphid eggs is it, they're, hard, they're really hard to find. You do 100 spur samples per orchard. If you find one egg, it's time to, it means you've got to spray. If you don't find any, it, it may mean you don't need to spray, but if you have a history of aphid problems in that orchard, it still may be uh, a good idea to to, uh, to spray. You mentioned that they overwinter in the spurs. Would they overwinter also in the bark? I don't. My knowledge is they, they're almost always on the spurs. That's the only place that I know to look for them. Prune grow growers then have a couple of options. I guess you could just annually treat in the fall or wait and see what happens. Yes. Yep. And if you... Uh, you know, if you don't have a history, you can you know you can wait and see if you see a few of them coming in the spring when it's still kind of cool and they're not the populations aren't going to blow up. They really blow up when things warm up. Um, and if you see a few of them coming, then you can treat there. You know, spot treat or or uh, or treat the block. It really it depends upon your your history of trouble and uh, and your comfort level with with waiting to see what happens. As far as spray techniques go, is one better than another? As far as timings go, really, timing or method of application? No, there. You know, it just it it really depends upon the grower. Um, some growers spray now with a, a low rate of aphid, uh, probably a low rate of insecticide, 
or they'll spray uh, in a dormant or delayed dormant timing, or they can wait till, till bloom or right after bloom. All those treatments work really well, especially the early up, up through just past bloom because, yeah, first of all, most of those insecticides have to be careful with bees, so to work around your work around bloom. But between now and uh, you know when the when the leaves are just beginning to break out, coverage is really easy. The real trouble with spraying for aphids comes in once the once you once you've got full leaf out and the aphids can hide behind. The, well, the leaf curl plum aphids they curl the leaves up and it's hard to get contact materials in there. And even the mealy plum aphid, if you don't, uh, the leaves can distort a little bit and if you don't have really good coverage, uh, you won't get them all, and eventually that that coverage wears off, and you, you're back uh, back behind the eight ball. Some of the systemic neonic materials, mater- some of the systemic materials work just fine. Of course, they don't have to make direct contact to get the material. Are the materials more effective if combined with an oil? No, the oil helps with the scale. It's a, it's a it's got advantages to it, but we've tried with or without uh, oil, and uh, oil alone doesn't control with a single application. During, especially during the dormant timing, but uh, an insecticide alone, maybe with a little surfactant if a grower feels that way, but we've had success with just, just insecticide alone with good coverage. And as you pointed out, uh, you, you have to sort of pick your poison in a sense in that uh, there are products available that will work against aphids or peach twig borer and scale, but there may be water quality risks that you would have to accept at the same time. Yes, you've got to time your sprays to avoid uh, the conditions. Spraying at a time when when conditions for runoff, uh, which will include sometimes your pesticide with it portion of it, the rules say you can't, you shouldn't. Well, you're not allowed to spray within 48 hours of a predicted rainfall event that will result in runoff. Basically, when your soil saturated and any rain coming, you you run a risk of runoff and and pesticide runoff with it. So that's one of the reasons why growers like uh, this fall spray timing is. There's very little, well, there's no runoff with the rainfall we've been having, at least up to now. And uh, orchard access is easy. I mean, you're not rutting up orchards. It's pretty, uh, it's an effective timing. And uh, you can use low rates of uh, pyrethroid, and, uh, which is what most growers are using. And then driving in the orchard is not a problem as far as uh, mud, ruts, things like that. When you're planning a uh, post-bloom aphid control spray, aphid insecticides, always check with your packer. Find out what materials are um, approved by, you know, in the markets that they're going to be targeted. Are there any organic dried plum growers up that way? Yes, there's a couple of uh, big operations. You can get good aphid control with um, some some organic treatments. And I've, I know that uh, Phil Olson, the retired farm advisor in Butte County, years ago, applied two two oil sprays um, timed at the you know at the, at the um, at green tip and then at full bloom, the usual two, two fungicide applications of bloom and prunes, he put on four gallons of oil per acre, each of those timings, and got really very good aphid control. And I, I, I repeated the experiment and got it also. So there, and, and you can find organic oil uh, formulation. So there are options, but you, those two sprays have to be done very carefully. You need complete control, you know, complete coverage, but there, the, uh, there are organic options that do work. I would think one of those organic options might be uh, limiting their summer habitat if they're surrounding weeds or bulrushes, as you said, that um, minimizing those habitats can help control the population. You know, that's I had I don't know if anybody's looked at that, although it makes sense. They tend to they can come a long distance. But another thing that Bill looked at that fits right in with their, their with that habitat management is because the aphids move back into the orchard in the uh, in the fall. If you eliminate 
the leaves with uh, a zinc spray, uh, you know, a zinc fertilizer spray in the, in the fall. Sometimes that knocks off leaves. Then they don't have any place to, because they come back in, they feed and mate. But if there's no, if you've eliminated their their habitat uh, in the prune orchards going into the fall, then that that can have a an impact, can reduce their population going into the winter, and that's that's an effective practice too. Or at least it has it's shown has shown shown some benefit. Something the growers could look at. Is there anything you'd like to add to this? It's really important to uh, to consider aphid control at one of these different timings we've talked about. There are the good news about aphids is that there's lots of effective materials out there. You can pick your timings based on the history of your orchard and your your uh, monitoring practices. The ability, how quickly can you get back in and and spray in the spring, things of that nature. The good news is, say, the good news is there's lots of things you can do, options you can do. The important thing is to to have a plan and to uh, to con- to make sure you uh, either Take care of it ahead of time if you've got a history, or uh, treat later in the if you once you see some pressure coming. Otherwise, uh, you can really impact your your production and prunes. Now's the time to control future populations for mealy plum aphids and the leaf curl plum aphids in California's dried plum and fresh plum orchards. Franz Niederholzer, farm advisor with Calusa Sutter Yuba Counties. Thanks so much for telling us more about aphid control in plum trees. Thanks very much for the chance to talk to your listeners. Back in 2009, a study was conducted by the California Department of Food and Agriculture in partnership with the National Wildlife Research Center on the annual effects of rodents on 22 agricultural commodities across 10 counties throughout California. Rather astounding findings, $168 million to $500 million in estimated loss of revenue due to rodents, 2,100 to 6,300 jobs lost in Monterey County, and crop damage caused by rodent infestation was responsible for between $44 million and $128 million in annual revenue loss, as well as hundreds, if not thousands of jobs. And that's just in Monterey County alone. Combating this problem has been a costly process for California's growers, but they've managed to reduce infestations using pesticides, fences, and traps. But now there's renewed interest in coaxing Mother Nature into the battle against rodents on farm, and that's employing barn owls to help reduce rodent populations. And who would know more about that than the resident winged predator expert out at UC, the University of California Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor based in Woodland, Rachel Long. And Rachel, a lot more people Farmers, maybe people who own ranchettes, are interested in attracting barn owls. But exactly what do we mean by rodents? Well, uh, well, thank you for having me. And uh, rodents, uh, as you just mentioned, are really, really terrible pests, uh, especially for uh, for farmers because they feed on the crops. Uh, they and they also can uh, damage the irrigation line. So when I'm talking about rodents, I'm referring to mice, to voles, which are also called uh, meadow mice, uh, gophers. And uh, and then sometimes even we get uh, we get rats out there on the farms, and so um, so yes, yeah, so these are really uh, really terrible pests that uh, that definitely are challenging to uh, to control. But I hear a lot of farmers screaming through the window at me, and homeowners as well, saying, "But what about squirrels? Will they go after squirrels?" So uh, yeah, so barn owls know probably the uh, they won't go after squirrels. You know they're just uh, too too big of prey. There's certainly a lot of raptors that'll go after the uh, the squirrels. And so you have uh, hawks and you have uh, uh, eagles and maybe it's even some. Um, but, the, but the other problem is, is, you know, the squirrels are active during the daytime 
and uh, and the uh, and so raptors and uh, the owls are, are are active at night, and uh, and so they just you know they just don't uh, don't overlap. But of course the uh, the uh, uh, like hawks and uh, eagles uh, they're active during the day, and so they're more of the uh, predators of the squirrels. So the nocturnal rodents, the voles, the gophers, the mm-hmm. rats, the meadow mice, they are the mm-hmm. targets then of these barn owls. H- how many rodents will a barn owl eat? So, uh, um, so a family of five, and that would include like two adults and uh, and three young. They'll feed on about a thousand rodents during the se- during the season. You know, when they're nesting and, and going out and actively hunting and bringing bringing rodents, or, you know, gophers and voles back to the nest. And uh, so they'll, uh, as I say, about a thousand rodents during the season. And sometimes they'll even nest twice in a year. And uh, when they nest twice, you know, then you're doubling that number of rodents. So. Uh, so that's uh, that's a lot of rodents that they will feed on in a uh, in a year. Barn owls are are very recognizable if you get a chance to see them by their white face, but they have a, a, a slightly different call than your typical screech owl, don't they? Right, they do. You know that uh, that when you hear these uh, barn owls at night, they actually do screech, and uh, rather than hoot, a lot of the uh, or owls are, are hooting owls. You know, we're really familiar, for example, with the great horned owl hoot. But the uh, barn owls have a loud screech. And uh, and it, it actually can be kind of scary if you don't know what it is, or some people just find it really annoying. Uh, but others of us know that you know it's actually good to hear that sound at night because it means that you've got a predator out there that's hunting your uh, your your gophers and and mice and uh, and uh, helping to control them naturally. I am sure many people have been surprised at the sight of a barn owl at dusk because you don't hear them coming. They can swoop in and you won't even know they're there. Yeah, they uh, they are actually, you know, they're they're just stealthy. I mean, they uh, they actually have uh, their feathers are sort of modified so that uh, so that they just really don't make a sound. And it it is startling, you know, when you're when you're out in the evening and then suddenly a barn owl is like right above you and you just don't even hear it. It's really uh, it's really remarkable how how well they can uh, they can hunt at night, and that's what makes them so effective. Is they've got great eyesight, and uh, and then you just don't even hear the the beat of their wings, uh, the whooshing that you normally would hear from other birds. You don't hear from the from the owls, and that's what makes them su- such successful uh, predators. And uh, that they can they can capture their prey at night, and the prey don't even hear them. Do they prefer hunting in open areas like vineyards or alfalfa fields or along levees? They do. So, uh, so they actually are, are more um, foraging in uh, in like grasslands and marshes and uh, and maybe uh, oak woodlands that they don't like. You know, dense forested areas. Uh, but they will feed uh, in pretty actively in vineyards and also. Um, alfalfa and of course patrolling the the levees the open levees which is really important to uh, to really ensure that uh, that you don't have any rodents that could weaken the the levees that might then breach and uh, and cause flooding this is a good time too if you want to attract barn owls to uh, find some good places to put barn owl boxes because around this time november and december is when they're seeking out nesting sites right that's exactly true. That this is just the perfect time to to put up a a nest box because uh, because the males and females are getting together and they're searching out nest sites. And uh, so the the barn owls actually begin nesting in uh, in February. And uh, so you really want to make sure if you uh, if you want to put out a house for the uh, for the barn owls that now is the time to put it out because 
they are looking for nest sites at this time in, in order to uh, to start laying eggs in February. Well, let's talk a little bit about placement of barn owl mm-hmm. boxes. Where are the ideal locations for them? So they uh, so barn owls uh, that uh, that they do like uh, they do like open space to uh, to forage. They're not you know they don't they don't fly in through through a forest. So they like open areas. And so the best thing is to to put a barn owl uh, box a house. Um, up on a pole about uh, 10 feet up in, up in the air and uh, and and where where it's open where they can easily fly in and out uh, to uh, to access their roost and uh, and we really suggest using a metal pole because if you use a wooden pole then you can get uh, critters like um, raccoons that are, you know climbing up and down and then uh, preying on the uh, on their feeding on the young so so it's better to uh, to have the house up on a metal pole I once tried actually to uh, to put a, a barn owl box like up in a walnut tree, and uh, and it just was never used. And I think of two reasons. One is that it was just you know they're 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 not they're not like bats that you know can dart in and out of little areas. They're big, and so they do need space to get in and out of a house. And then secondly, I think predators were moving up and down the uh, the trunk of the tree, and so that barn owl box it just sat there for like ten years, never being used. But then we had a uh, another barn owl box up on a pole, you know, maybe, uh, maybe like a, a hundred yards away, and and that one was uh, used right away. So so where you mount them is and where you place them is is critical. And uh, and then I've also heard that if you face them northeast, you know, where you get that morning, uh, sometimes that morning sun to the east, uh, then uh, then they're they're used apparently more. Uh, than than other placements. I would think too they would want a place where they would think they would be safe from human activity. So like a quiet area of the property where there's not much foot or vehicle traffic. Well, you know when they're nesting, they're they're kind of mildly territorial, so they'll they'll be protective of their nest. So if you try to come up to them when they have a, a nest and young, you know, they they'll get very upset and they'll start uh, they'll start hissing and and, uh, and kind of clucking or snapping their their beaks, and uh, but. But you know, bar- barn owls—they got their name from, uh, you know, basically from roosting in barns, and so they have, you know, had a long history of kind of associating and being around people. And uh, and and so you can, uh, for example, you know, put a barn owl box up in a barn. But but that said, you know, during the nesting season, they just, you know, they're more protected, more protective of their nest, and they don't, you know, like people in and out or right right around them. But they do, you know, they'll tolerate people, but but probably not during the nesting season. There's the distinctive cry of the barn owl. And we're talking barn owls on this edition of the KSTE Farm Hour. We're continuing our conversation with Rachel Long, UC Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor based in Woodland. I was surprised to learn that barn owls uh, do have predators coming after them, and uh, one of their major enemies are other species of owls. Yeah, like the great horned owl that uh, that I was talking to a guy just the other day, and he was telling me that he was just watching a barn owl, and a great horned owl just came out of nowhere, and just and just and just basically just just came down and just snared it. It was he said it was uh, it was really just kind of a little distressing because he because he loves his barn owls, but yeah, that uh, that can happen and. Uh, and so the, uh, the one of the main predators, of course, of the barn owl is is the great horned owl. What are some of the other predators of barn owls? 
Well, so when the when the young are little, uh, the, so the little young barn owls, they actually have massive feet and big claws that they'll use for fighting predators. But but of course the raccoons, if they get in the, into the boxes, they can uh, they can feed on the uh, the barn owls, and uh, and then. You know, sad thing too is that uh, they get hit by a lot of cars, and uh, and I'm not sure why, except for they, you know, when they're they're just fixated on hunting prey, and uh, especially maybe along freeways and such, they just don't don't see the uh, the cars. So so the uh, the lifespan of the barn owl, unfortunately, is only a couple of years, and and uh, it just seems too short for all the good that they do, as compared to. Something like bats, in which I'll live for 30 years. So that two years is uh, is real short. But the neat thing is about the barn owls is that they will come back the following year and nest in the same place that they that they took up residence the year before. So if you're lucky, you may get uh, the same pair coming back for for several years at uh, raising their young. I've heard uh, some varying views on placement of barn owls in relation to what they're hunting, that farmers who have placed barn owl houses in the midst of an area where there is a lot of rodent activity, the, mm-hmm. the owls may shy away from that because they don't want to attract predators of them to that area. So they would tend, they would rather fly a distance to go after predators or to go after mm-hmm. the, their prey mm-hmm. rather than have it right beneath their house. Oh gosh, I hadn't I hadn't heard that, but there's uh, you know they probably do a bit of everything that uh, that that my guess is that uh, that you know if there's prey right there, then they'll feed on it. Um, if there's not enough prey, then uh, the rodents uh, to feed on, then they'll they'll you know fly fly somewhere else. And but they don't go far. Maybe you know um, one to three miles uh, away from their their roost. You know most of these uh, uh, birds uh, that uh, and bats they just don't like to go far from the roost when they when they have their young. They like to keep an eye on them. So so my guess is they're really resourceful and they uh, you know they 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 just go where where uh, where a food source is. And but if they sense a predator. Or, great horned owls in the area then of course you know like all of us we'd uh, we'd go and we'd uh, find another place to hunt now how about some barn owl house basics uh what size Mm -hmm. should it be and how do you how do you clean the thing Oh, that's a really good question. So there's uh, there's wonderful barn uh, barn owl box or house plans in uh, one of our uh, uh, University of California the booklets called Songbird, Bat, and Owl Boxes that can uh, can be found uh, online. And uh, and then also there's a lot of plans also that are that are found online. But you know, it basically it's just like a large a large box that's you know at least uh, maybe you know uh, two feet by uh, wide. Um, by one foot, uh, by you know, by maybe another 15 inches high, and with a with a hole uh, in it, so that the barn owls can go uh, in and out. And then what you have is in the back, you'll have a little hinged door that you can open up because the the barn owl box will fill up with pellets and such. And so uh, so you, at the end of the nesting season. Uh, usually in the fall, uh, early winter. So you're talking, you know, maybe October, November, December. Then, then you can open up the back and try to sweep that out. Of course, you don't want to breathe any of that dust, you know, because the uh, it basically, you know, just uh, could be could be a little bit uh, unhealthy to breathe that dust. Um, but uh, but then you can do that, and you want to check and just sort of maintain the the houses that way. Um, but that said, you know, I had a a really fun uh, conversation with a uh, with a local farmer uh, recently, and uh, and he actually says that uh, that he has somebody that uh, that comes by every year 
and collects his uh, barn owl pellets. So the barn owl pellet is a, as you know, it's just that the barn owls cannot uh, digest like like bones and fur, and so they can't digest that. So what they do is they upchuck it, and uh, and and uh, and it, so it's uh, it, when it comes back out, it's just this matted pellet with fur and uh, and skeletons or just bones of of rodents, and uh, and so he has a guy that actually comes by and he. He buys these pellets uh, from him, and uh, and the pellets are actually used in science projects in schools, um, where the kids then uh, dissect these these pellets, and uh, and again it's just you know regurgitated fur and skeletons and uh, bones and uh, and they dissect them as part of a science project, you know, just for uh, for looking at you know skeletons and uh, seeing what the uh, what the owls are eating. Going back to the construction of the barn owl house, how big should that opening be to allow them to get in and get out? You know, it's got to be at least, uh, I would say, about uh, maybe six inches uh, high and, say, uh, four to five inches wide. And, uh, and as I say, those plans can be, can be found on the, on the website. And it used to be, you know, that we'd recommend having a perch there, but we don't anymore. Because I think when you have a perch that, uh, that hawks can actually land on the little perch, you know, outside the hole. And then they can reach in with their talons and, uh, and pluck out a, uh, a little baby barn owl. So, so actually, we recommend now really not even having that perch. Do they need a, a cooler environment if they're going to be there in the springtime? Uh, so would these houses be better mm-hmm. placed uh, in, the, mm-hmm. in the shade of a tree or perhaps painted white? You know, they, uh, uh, that actually uh, painting them white seems to help out with uh, reflecting the sunlight so they just don't, uh, don't get as hot. But, of course, they're nesting in February, and sometimes they'll have a second clutch in May, and so you don't have that intense heat you know, like you do in the summertime. But um, but the, uh, the the white apparently does reflect the heat. And it used to be that people thought, well, maybe you have to put a sun shield on a larger board on top so it doesn't get so hot. But uh, but in uh, temperature studies that people have done, they uh, it's just basically you could uh, either have them white or you could, you know, have the sun shield up and it doesn't matter. So now we're just going to white, just paint them white and it reflects the sun and keeps them a little cooler. And I would imagine that wood would be cooler than plastic. They seem to use the wooden boxes more than the uh, plastic ones, and so uh, so that's, uh, that's something that uh, that if you then if you have a wooden box, then painting it is important, of course, to help out with the weathering. And what about bedding? What do they prefer? So they don't. Uh, so unlike other birds, they don't build a nest, and and so uh, uh, so it takes a while for them just to kind of uh, like have uh, enough of like uh, what they'll do is they'll upchuck these pellets and then they'll kind of spread them around as kind of little nesting material so that when they lay the eggs that the eggs don't roll around and it takes them a while to do that so so the best thing to do is to uh, to, to actually bring and put some bedding in the barn owl boxes for them and uh, that bedding uh, something that works really well is uh, timothy hay and Timothy hay you can use, you can just buy in most uh, local, uh, like hardware, not hardware stores, but feed stores. Um, and it's used for like, you know, feeding guinea, pig, guinea pigs and, uh, and rabbits. And so just buy a bag of uh, Timothy hay and just put a little bit in and, uh, and that'll create the bedding. And it seems to bring the uh, barn owls in sooner so that, they, uh, that they'll start laying eggs sooner. 
Again, now's the time that barn owls are hunting for nesting sites to start laying their eggs uh, come winter time. And if you want more information about building barn owl houses, uh, go to that uh, booklet that Rachel was talking about called Songbird, Bat, and Owl Boxes, and you can find it at the UC Ag and Natural Resources catalog. If you just do a search on Songbird, Bat, and Owl Boxes, I'm sure that would pop right up. And it's uh, written by uh, uh, Rachel and Chuck Engels. Sacramento County Farm Advisor and uh, Lodi Grape Grower and Barn Owl Enthusiast Tom Hoffman. You know, one thing is that uh, the, the, the barn owls really do have uh, incredible hearing and incredible uh, uh, sight. You know, they have that they have that icon- iconic heart-shaped face that's just beautiful. You know, they they're, they're have a white face and a, and a white body and then a tan back with lots of spots. And that, uh, that iconic heart-shaped face really helps to... Uh, to channel um, sound, so they're, they're of course they're listening and they're flying and they're listening for those uh, uh, those rodents that are scurrying around like in the grass, and it's just a really just an amazing adaptation to me that you know that they uh, that they actually have this this heart shaped face that allows them to hunt so efficiently. They're amazing hunting creatures that can help you control the rodent population on your farm or rural area. Rachel Long, UC Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor in Woodland, thanks for telling us more about barn owls. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.